Hello and welcome to Pop Cult Podcast, a show about movies, television, comics, etc. Now here is your host, Seth Harris. Welcome to our latest episode of Pop Cult Podcast. Today uh, is kind of a sci-fi themed episode. Uh, first up, we're going to have our top five sci-fi movies with Ariana and I going through our list. And then after that, we have a very off-the-cuff conversation about having watched through about 30 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, the Star Trek TNG movies, and the first season of Picard. So I hope you are ready for some sci-fi fun. And here we go with the top five list. here with Ariana and we are talking about our top five science fiction movies today. Did you find this an easy or hard list to make Ariana? It was an okay list. Okay well okay what does that mean? I mean like there's certain ideas of sci-fi that I try to almost get away from. Okay. I noticed when I made my list. I noticed that it was when you search sci-fi, like when you're trying to see, okay, well, what are the sci-fi movies to get a sense of the range that you're looking for? It is a massive range of movies. I think that was appealing to me almost. Because they were like, oh, there's movies I would consider comedies, but yeah, they are sci-fi. Or movies that are horror, but are also sci-fi. So it's yeah, a very wide range. Sense. Yeah. Alright, well, let's go ahead and get started. We'll start with your number five uh, science fiction movie. It's Gone Girl. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's about to go. <laughs> it's Okja. Oh, okay, Okja. Uh, Bong Joon-ho, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, for 10 idyllic years, Mija has been a caretaker and a constant companion to Okja, a massive animal and even bigger friend. Um, she lives in South Korea. It's a story about this girl trying to basically get her best friend back. Um, and this was one of the reasons why I became a vegetarian. Oh, and her best friend is a genetically engineered, like, pig hippo type yes. of creature? Okay. Uh, yes, this is a Netflix movie. Yeah. I feel like it didn't do... There wasn't, like, a massive audience for this movie. Uh, I think it was also one of the first, um, big Netflix movies also. For, I mean, that I can recall that there's, like, a lot of... Big names. Um, like Jake Gyllenhaal, Tilda Swinton. Yes. There's a lot of people in it. Yeah. Steven uh, Yoon, who like got mm -hmm. nominated for an Oscar recently. Um, it was also a film that was in Korean and English. So I don't know if that set a few people off to begin with, but I liked the film. It talked about like the meat industry without really shoving it in your face, but that really depends on the viewer. Um, what do we view as like life? How do we value that? And then also like the way that like the greed within the industry of wanting to make this perfect thing that we can consume but not understanding that even though you made it to consume it still has feelings and she like the main character <coughs> uh, Maya is you know wanting to save her best friend so when uh, i felt 
I always love Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in it because it's so over the top. Yes, it is very over the top um, in his performance. Like, you can tell that they just let him do whatever he needed to do. But at the same time, it wasn't as bad as an, another Netflix film that he was in that was not good. Oh, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, it's the film about the art world. Yes. Yeah, that <laughs> was... And wow. that was another type of acting that yeah. we saw. But, um... Ocha, like, Mija, had, apparently this was her first film. That actress, yeah. yeah. And she's very natural in it. And I think I also realized by looking through, sci- uh, like, sci-fi films, I don't like sci-fi films that explain to me what this world is. Well, I mean, they do in the movie. They do, but not to the point that it's, like, shoved in your face of how this world is different there, from ours. There's not, like, a ton of exposition. Yeah, there's none of no. this, like... And this year, it's like it's sort of like it's explained, but in a way that you don't feel as if you're getting exposition from X Y character who came in to tell you. It's just like what if I remember correctly, like the exposition at the beginning of the movie is done almost in the form of like a corporate meeting about the project. Yes. So it's people talking about it and explaining details in a way that you're like, yeah, in a meeting, that's the way people talk. Yeah, and it was also the fact that, like, uh, this Okja had basically won an award for being, like, the best animal of sorts because they had given it to different farmers to see how they would have developed over time. And they're like, oh, this was the best one. But they're also not kind of acknowledging that the love and care that they gave this animal is probably why it grew so well and they just completely dismiss the fact that there's any attachments that certain people can obtain by raising these animals and I'm sure like farmers to a certain extent sort of put a barrier up but I think it was an important viewing of being like oh she had an attachment and how far <coughs> she was willing to go in order to save this animal. Well, they definitely showcase factory farming and how brutal Ooh, that yeah, is. Yeah, that is, like, at first you're like, oh, if you only saw the trailers, you would have thought that Ocha yeah. is a film that you could watch with your family. Like, oh, it's like E.T. or something. And it is not at the end. Like, it is, like... Well, I, I always remember the scene where Jake Gyllenhaal's character, who's kind of like a wildlife actor, ex- posing as a wildlife expert, yeah. but he's more just like a PR media person yes. for the company. Uh, he takes that like meat sample from the okja where it like takes a like a cylindrical core out of it yeah and I think I'd read that's what they actually do with certain cows like they'll just cut this you know cylinder of meat out yeah, of them yeah and like the director has openly said if this film made you a vegetarian that was my purpose yeah like that was <laughs> his, he's a yeah. vegetarian too which I mean talks about sci-fi is often uh, less about the future than it is a commentary on the present you yeah. can fantastic elements yeah and this is like a perfect example of that all right well my number five uh is a pretty mainstream movie okay or i don't know it's a little indie you may have never heard of it. it's called back to the future <laughs> <laughs> never heard of it so never seen ninth, it on cable what are you talking about ninth, and i would almost say the entire back to the future trilogy i'd like to cheat and put that in there oh, uh, no, you 1985 <laughs> to 1990 robert zemeckis and for me, this was the movie that taught me how time travel worked. Now, yeah. there are lots of different forms of time travel. Yeah. But this is the movie where I, especially for Back to the Future Part 2, it was the idea of by going and doing something in time, you create branching parallel timelines, which was... Yeah. I think I was seven or eight when Back to the Future 2 came out, so this was a new idea to me. <laughs> The idea of like, oh, I didn't think about that. But yeah, if you were to travel through time, 
you would change the future. I don't think I was that committed to the ideas you were at the Oh, I was. I had a Hot Wheel car that was not even a DeLorean, but it looked close enough like to a DeLorean that I would sing the Back to the Future theme song as I drove this car around on the carpet. Like this, I can remember the first time I saw this movie. It was at my grandmother's house. I don't know any other circumstances. I just remember being in her den, and this was on cable, and I didn't even see the beginning. I can remember the very first scene I saw from the movie was him coming to the mall where Doc is. Okay. So I don't know what's going on, and I'm just like, what? What was this car? What's happening? And then like. People show up and shoot Doc, and I'm like, what? And then he goes, and I didn't think I understood at first that he had gone back in time, because I didn't see his parents at first. But it's a movie that I've revisited many times since then. It was like a movie that we recorded off of TV and would rewatch as kids. Yeah. Um, And now as an adult, I appreciate it so much as a comedy. Like, it is a genuinely hilarious comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And the acting is really good. Like, I can't imagine any other actors in those roles. I know Eric Stoltz was originally going to play Marty. Yeah. And, like, Michael J. Fox is just so perfect for that role. Christopher Lloyd is Doc. Yeah, it's... which is interesting because I didn't know that they made him look older for You just scene. think he's an old man. Because, like, when I saw him in, like, current films that he was that age, I was just like, oh, he's just always been yeah. old. So I think he's, like... he was, like, in his maybe 40s or early 50s when he played Doc. So, like, the Doc he meets in the 50s is closer to what Christopher Lloyd actually looked like at the time. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. And then, um, uh, Biff. I mean, it's such an iconic villain. <laughs> yeah, and I love the fact that, like, there's always a Biff in <clears throat> each generation. Yeah. Like, it's as if that's all that they can raise. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because in the first movie, science fiction is not necessarily an, a part of the villain in the story. Science fiction is just this other element that's created a problem for Marty. Yeah. And then the actual conflict is a very human conflict. It's seeing your parents as they once were and then putting that up against the people they are now and participating in the events of their life to try to fix the problems you saw them having. Well, I think it's also this weird thing of... The, like, remember how his mom was like, I wasn't that type of girl. And she's, like, incredibly and she's promiscuous. she's, like, a horn dog, like, yeah. the whole time. And then I don't think he ever thought his dad was cool, but then he realized how nerdy his well, dad like, really was. His dad is a peeping Tom who was spying on his mother changing. That's what, like... Because Marty startles him. He... F- f- and uh, Or I think it was the original timeline was, like, Marty's dad uh, gets hit... And they weren't exactly sure why he was up in a tree and fell out of it. They just know that they hit him with the car. Yeah. And, and so Marty sees the context of it going back. That No, his dad was spying on Lorraine changing in her room. And it was a movie that, because it was made in the 80s at a certain time, we now look back and there are like weird like moments that don't age well like that. Where you're yeah. like, oh, that's like really messed up. And, like, yeah. Biff is super rapey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, he is out there to not get any consent. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, and he, he, get, he loses in the end, which is Yeah, great. which is a good thing. Uh, but, yeah, I just feel like Back to the Future is, like, great pop science fiction. Like, you yeah. don't have to know it too deep. The movie does exposition in a funny, entertaining way. Like, Doc's rants about time travel are also a way for the movie to communicate to you what's going on because it's so confusing but it's done in a way that like 
it acknowledges this is absolutely insane what we're explaining here like it's going to confuse you but just trust us we know what we're doing uh, back to the future was my number five uh what is your number four it is alien okay <laughs> um, since this is an audio media, Seth looked at his list and then clicked his tongue. I don't know if that was his appointment or well. double checking. Um, yeah, I remember seeing the sequels when I was really young. <coughs> so um, the Aliens and Alien Three. It was mostly Alien Three. Is that the one that was like directed by a French guy who was like kind of? Oh no, that was Alien Resurrection. Okay, I saw like pieces of that like when I was a kid. Um, Before you go further, I just want to say that is like a perfect movie of a European directing a movie in the way they think Americans talk because everything is like you fucking bitch, and they're just like gratuitous profanity. Yeah, constantly. (laughs) Um, So Alien is one of those films that like. I found it very interesting that Ripley at first was supposed to be cast as a male character. Then they switch it over and um, it's one of those films that sort of like it always haunts me. Especially like this is going to go like a little bit on the X side but anytime I've ever had a pregnancy scare the moment the alien just like jumps out of the stomach is the constant thing in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. Like if I ever have a moment where I think I want to conceive a child just put on alien and I just might rethink my whole thing. Even though like I know that's not how you know humans <laughs> come out but that is the fear of how it's going to come out. Um... Everybody knows this film. I. It's very rare that they don't. It's a uh, deep in space uh, crew of <coughs> starships are um, are awakened in their cryo sleep capsules halfway through their journey to investigate a distress call from an alien vessel. Um, the sad thing when you think about any of the sequels or any of the movies that like try to revamp it. They go from working class people to scientists who need to figure out what's going on. And I think what I appreciate about with the Alien franchise is this one, like the first film. It is just a bunch of people wanting to finish their job. And they have no interest in knowing why. And they have no interest of knowing why. They don't have the background towards it. And like the twists and turns that, that go through this... Um... It does have a male gazy thing towards the end when Ripley's like in her underwear walking around with the fucking cat. But I would always argue that's more like vulnerability. I yeah, I think they're trying to show vulnerability, but at the same time, you're mm-hmm. just kind of like really like. Um, but it is. I think it's still a great film. Again, it's one of those films that doesn't shove it in your face as to like this is what why the future is like this. Brr, like it's just. People who are out doing their job, who happen to call out distress call, not knowing why, but are happen to also know that they are under pressure. And if you view it as a socialist view, at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, we should have union things because like they're constantly being like, but the the rule says we have to do this, and or they say if we don't follow through, we won't get paid. And so a lot of them are like conflicted because they want to go home and get paid. Um, they have families they have well, to the, attend the to. villain in the story is the Wayland yutani Corporation. Yes. The alien's like, 
the direct antagonist, but the big overarching villain is the Yeah, because they kind of yeah. knew that this was happening and they wanted to put in people that were, you know, easily uh, disposable and... And who needed the money more than they would fight back against an order. Well, it's also because they already set up so many rules that would make it impossible for them to, to say no to. Mm-hmm. Well, we might be hearing more about Alien later in this list. Okay. <laughs> uh, my number four is John Carpenter's The Thing, 1982. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is one of the best, kind of like Alien, it's a great horror movie and a science fiction movie. It doesn't need to explain what's going on in too much detail. It gives just enough. You have that one character played by Wilford Brimley that's the scientist he studies some cells from the creature, mm-hmm. and that's all we need to know. So if you're unfamiliar with the thing, uh, it is set in Antarctica. Um, a group of scientists and there's a pilot and other like technician-type people are at an outpost. They come across a Swedish helicopter that's shooting at one of their sled dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh the helicopter blows up. They take the sled dog in. It turns out the sled dog is actually an alien sort of bacterial creature that can mimic uh, other forms. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of the movie is complete and utter paranoia. They uh, lose their minds try- and lives trying to figure out yeah. who is the uh, creature and who isn't. And it is probably the best John Carpenter movie, at least in my opinion, that he's ever made. And it's the funny thing is, it was a complete box office failure when it was released. It came out in the yeah. summer of 1982, and it was reviled by critics. Audiences didn't rush out to see it. Uh, I can't remember what else was out in 1982, but I feel like there was something that, like, sort of took the wind out of its sails. And it it was it's gory. Like even by today's yeah, standards, it it's is still gory. very gory. So as a summer movie in the 80s, I don't think the audience was there yet. If it came out now, I think, you know, movies like Deadpool have become so popular that children wear Deadpool clothes to school. Yeah. That I feel like people are more open to the idea of, like, violence in their movies. I think if it came out now, even as, like, especially... It's still very slow. Like, especially during the pandemic, that would have, like been a mind-blowing thing i always think about like how it was the perfect setting of sorts because mm-hmm. this is the type of scenario of being trapped in uh like where they are no other people around and it is commonly known that people in those situations do go insane well like the alien once it is able to get its faculties starts destroying the communications equipment around the base so not only are they physically isolated, they can't even call out for help or warn people not yeah, to come. Yeah, and like this insane, like the beginning of how the like the thing comes in is there's that miscommunication because I think it's Russians that are coming in or it's, uh, Swedes, Swedes yeah. that are trying to kill the dog, and they're kind of like, <coughs> who wants to kill a dog? But none of them speak Sweden, and Swedish, Swedish, <laughs> and none of them like came. So the you know they didn't come in and alarm mm-hmm. them, so they shoot back at them thinking that it's something stupid, and then nothing else they're lost in complete like when it's not until they go to the swedish base camp and they start like poking around that they begin to find the pieces of what's going on but what i love is that the movie never explains sadly in the 2010s i believe they made a prequel also called the thing 
which is confusing, <laughs> that is set at that Swedish base. And it just so happens there's a bunch of English-speaking Americans that were there, too. That's dumb. Uh, and all it does is just try to redo the moments from this version. And it's a complete utter failure because its whole thing is... Exp you're learning, like, oh, that's why this looked like that when they went to the Swedish base in the first movie. And, oh, that's whose body that was in the first movie. Yeah. It's that sort of Easter egg porn that I completely mm -hmm. hate about a lot of, like, fandom movies. And so the thing I love about John Carpenter, because it's weird, I think we've, like, ended up watching some of his movies recently just by doing these, like, flashbacks to certain years. Yeah. We watched, like, The Fog. We watched mm -hmm. Halloween. I think I'm beginning to like him more than I used to, and it's because when you look at chronologically when these movies came out, nobody else was doing movies like these. He really was one of those people that like set a standard, and then a ton of people tried to copy it for years yeah. to come. Uh, and I just like the idea that he made this movie that he'll talk about even as he was making it, and like the level of gore and violence in it, they were like, I don't know if audiences are going to want to see this. But he made the movie he wanted to, and I think ultimately it is a masterpiece. Like, it is... Yeah, and he's great at making relatable characters. Yes, and it's they're, it's interesting because they're very, like, iconic characters. Like, you think of, you know, Michael Myers, or you think of Kurt Russell, all the characters he's played. Snake Plissken. Yeah. I can never remember the name of his character from uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. But, like, they're very iconic characters, like McCready and The Thing. So there's like, you can immediately figure out who they are based on what they look like in that first scene. But then there's all this complexity you get as the story goes yeah. on. So you realize like, oh yeah, they are that character, but there's more to it than that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the special effects in the thing for 1982 are stunning. It was Rob Botten is the special effects designer behind it. And I want to say he didn't do a whole lot of work other than the thing. I think he did a few other things. But, uh... It is amazing, like, the puppets and animatronics he builds that... And then also, it's I feel like it's a great Lovecraft movie because you're yeah. presented with horrors that are... It's hard to describe them. Like, when you describe, well, oh, a yeah. guy's head... You can't describe it, and also it's the fact that you are messing with these people's minds that you know very mm -hmm. well that once this ends, even if there is one sole survivor, that person will never be the same... And they're also destroying any evidence of what's happened, so they might be left, you know, yeah. as the target. And so that's why I feel like John Carpenter kind of does Lovecraft better than a lot of other directors have, even though yeah. he's not directly adapting Lovecraft works. Yeah. He gets the tone of this sort of, you are confronting a horror beyond anything you could ever stop, and you basically either just try to survive or protect the world from it. So that was my number four. What is your number three, Ariana? Possessor. To a 2020 film. Oh, yes. Very that recent. That has Vasya uh, Voss, a, an elite corporate assassin that takes control of other people's bodies using a brain impact technology to execute high-profile <coughs> targets. Mm -hmm. um, this movie's like a whole, like, people would say it aesthetic, but there's a certain feel about this movie. Yeah. And they do this very clever thing that the assassin who basically has to study the person that she's taking over their minds. So she assassinates with her consciousness in the body of another person. Yes. And she's... And it's like, you see her practicing and then you also see her practicing being herself. 
So they kind of run tests after she's out of the person's body with personal like items to for her to describe what it is, just to make sure that maybe there wasn't a mix of consciousness during it. Um, it's one of those films that feels very like creepy at the end. You are starting to feel like you start to understand that she is doing this, but maybe she doesn't want to do it forever. Apparently she's one of the best in her fields, but like the person who's in charge of her and used to do the same thing and is no longer young, so doesn't want to participate in this. Um, Was the, the implication is that the longer you do it, the more your own like psyche is deteriorated? Well, I think it's not your psyche, but more as if like your ability to, to distinguish between good and bad are, are completely Well, limited. it turns you into a sociopath. Yes. And so, um, I think it's, like, it's beautifully done. And it's, you What's know... David Cronenberg's son. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And there are some creepy visual stuff, but it's supposed to show you, like, the distress that she's under, and then also the realization that the corporation that she works for is kind of freaking out because they need to pull her out, but it is very hard to do so, um... The risks that she's taking, she has a son, she has a husband that she's separated from that she wants to be engaged with but finds it very difficult to be so because she's doing all these things and they don't know anything about this. And um, the ending is one that kind of like shocks you. Like it's also one of those films that like makes you kind of question a little, it might I'm saying this because, like, if you have anything <coughs> about gender dysmorphia, like, you probably should not watch this film. Well, I'm about to say it's a very transhumanist film where it's like yes. the idea of the body is not uh, solid. Like, yes. bo the body becomes very fluid over the course yeah, of the Yeah, and the reason that I say this is, like, if if you have that, that might set off a trigger. I'm not, I'm like, I can't speak to anybody who has those sort of, like... Well, there's some very graphic scenes. Yes. Yeah. And so it's one of those that I can understand if someone says, I don't like that because it made, it triggered something or made me feel uncomfortable. But it's also, like, this understanding that, like, the way I perceive he's, like, uh, is sort of giving it to us is that you are mixing yourself into someone else. And you can become someone else entirely, so it's going to be a, a like combating between who takes full control, and it's one of those times that the person suddenly awakens and wants to know what the fuck is going on and why is she taking over and the struggle, and then the ending is one that is really fucked up. Well, it's um, like you're saying visually, there's very few movies like it. Yeah, and I know there. I've read some criticism where people have talked about how turned off they were by the movie; they didn't like it. And I think part of that is because there are no good people in the movie. Maybe other than her child and her husband, maybe. Yeah, but it's like, not a film that there's and they're any not good in or bad guys. And the thing is, well, I think there. I was. Wait, there are good. There are bad guys. I think most se. people are bad guys. But I think movie. it also has to do with the fact that like you don't you don't get a sense of justice by the end of this film. Oh no, it's a film that. Ends on an incredibly bleak note. Which should have been on your list because you love bleakness. Well, there's movies that I liked better than this. <laughs> I think because it's so new, I'm a little more hesitant on that one because it just came out last year. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those where I want to see if it sticks for me. Uh, I do think it is a very relevant movie. 
Yeah. It feels like it's very much about our time in the way that like good sci-fi is. Uh, so my number three movie mm-hmm. is Alien, 1979. Well, we can't discuss it. Just uh, that's why I was so quiet while you were discussing it. <laughs> uh, so Alien, we've talked about that a little bit. Uh, it, I believe I also included it as part of my horror masterworks back in October. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those few movies. It's kind of like Back to the Future. It's a fantastic comedy and it's a fantastic science fiction movie. Alien is the same thing for sci-fi and horror. Yeah. It hits both genres perfectly. Um, and I don't like Ridley Scott as a director. I think this might be the only Ridley Scott movie I enjoy this much. Um, spoiler alert, Blade Runner is not on my list. I know for a lot of people that would be on their uh, top sci-fi list. Uh, with that movie, I think production design-wise, it's great. And a lot of uh, Ridley Scott's production design is gorgeous. Alien's the only time where I feel like the story matches the production design. And all and the yeah. acting and everything is really good. He's a director who uh, there's a lot of emotional distance between him and his characters. That's the one thing I noticed, like in Blade Runner and Alien, is we don't get to know characters really deep on a personal level. Yeah. Uh, in Alien, they're uh, industrial workers. They've come back from extracting uh, minerals of some kind, and they're headed back to get their pay for the work they've done. Yeah. Um, there is an aesthetic to it that's really, really interesting. Sort of like a retro. I don't. I forget. There's like a name that has been coined for this aesthetic because it's the that sort of computer screen you see in like the Star Wars movies, uh, yeah. and, where it's it's not futuristic. Like when you look at it, you're like, none of this looks futuristic. Knowing like what a screen looks like now. Yeah. But there's like this appeal to it where you're just like I love the look of this like it feels so like bare bones um it is uh a great body horror movie yes and there was a deleted scene and I'm kind of glad they deleted it because we had talked a bit about the not explaining things Mm -hmm. uh because one of the things that uh and of course this month in May I'm watching Aliens by James Cameron, which does get more into explaining the life cycle of the alien. And in the first movie, there's just no... We see this egg, we see the face hugger, we see the alien come out of his stomach and then grow to like immense size very quickly. And we don't never know where the egg comes from. That was like an interesting thing. Uh, Well, there's a deleted scene that shows the alien secreting some sort of liquid and then covering it was um the captain in it and turning him into an egg because ripley comes across him and he's like partly through the transformation but i'm glad they cut that because i think the mystery of the creature is what makes it so scary is you don't understand you didn't understand that there was something that was going to pop out of that egg you didn't know that that face hugger put an egg inside John Hurt. Yeah. You didn't know that something was about to burst out of John Hurt's stomach and it was little and the next time you see it it's this massive creature drooling hanging above uh, Harry Dean Stanton and so it just you're in this place where you're like I don't know what happens next because I don't know what this thing is. It doesn't match anything that I understand. I can tell that there's a life cycle. Yeah. But I don't know where it's going next. So this film... I mean, and you talking out loud and thinking, and you, you're you right, there is a separation of characters. One of the things that we probably need to appreciate about Alien versus uh, 
what was that other Blade Runner? Blade Runner is the acting. Oh, yeah. And the editing. And I saw Blade Runner with you, like, the first time. And I aesthetically, visually, it is very beautiful. But I don't think Harrison Ford is a good actor. Yeah. Harrison P- Ford just plays Harrison Ford. That's that's what he does. What's well, the other um, than... Um, oh, I can't think of his name. The guy who plays Roy Batty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, like, the best actor in Blade Runner. And um, when you think about, like, just, like... Even the faces and the looks to one another during Alien is, you don't really, like, yeah, Rid, like Ridley is constantly going against her captain of being like, we are breaking protocol, he is supposed to stay in quarantine, when one of the guys, like, had a, like, they're just like, we need to let him out. And they're like, no, he's supposed to stay in quarantine. There isn't, there isn't a screaming match. From what I recall, they, they raise their voices. They raise their but voices, it's but it's realistic. They're in a high realistic. pressure situation. And but it's also like you get a sense of their personalities by the way they talk to each other. And Ridley does this, like I think, um, is it supposed to be Ripley? I'm saying Ripley. Ripley, yeah. Ripley does this thing where she is just sort of like calm, but you can also tell she's annoyed. Mm-hmm. And she's being undermined, and um, so you get a sense like she's been doing this for a while, and she wants to be captain one day. Well, like when you think about the cast, you got Sigourney Weaver, you've got um, Ian Holm yeah. as Ash, you've got Tom Skerritt as Dallas, you've got John Hurt, you've got Veronica Cartwright, you got Yafet Kato, you got Harry Dean Stanton. So you have like every actor in the movie is someone you will have seen in something yes, else. Yes, and they're all actors that are very good with their faces and their response to someone speaking to them. Well, all those actors had extensive experience in like theater or film. Like Veronica Cartwright was a child actor; she was in The yeah. Birds. Um, but all of them are so. They came to the table already really good at acting. Yeah. So that they can give, like you're saying, those little subtle, nuancing nods. Yeah, even though, like, there are times that, like, and I've seen people criticize Alien where you, the other female character is in hysterics the whole time. And I can understand that. Like, I can view that and be like, yeah, that makes sense. Why would she be this hysterical before the attack of the aliens kind of like well, come in. Uh, well, but. I think her hysteria, some of Ripley's hysteria in later movies makes sense. No, I mean like her, her co-worker. Like oh, well, yeah, I know it's sort yeah. of, everybody's going to react to it a different way. I'm like, there's literally an alien creature on board your ship killing people. I would feel like everybody would be hysterical. That's like yeah. pretty crazy. It's, but I feel like Veronica Cartwright, for any criticism she gets, she's so believable. Like, you feel yeah, like, like this is a person. Yeah, like, her eyes are watering. Yes. Like, she like, she's just, truly terrified. Yeah, and so it is, again, like, I think that's one of the things that we have to appreciate. And it's also, this is probably going to be a conversation for later, is how Ridley Scott won't fucking let go of the aesthetics of fucking Alien with, you know, robots with white liquid and whatnot. Yeah. And then, like, because, like, you... Like, well, I mean, if we want to talk about like Prometheus and then Alien, uh, sal- was Alien oh Salvation or whatever it was. Uh, but when you think about that other film that we were just talking about, like Harrison Ford that was in it, like Blade Runner. But they did the sequel, and that was probably one of my favorite films to watch because it's like you're giving it to another director who knows what he's doing and can make like, an emotional when connection. I feel like with the Alien series, after Ridley Scott, you know, you get James Cameron, you get David Fincher. Uh, you get, um, I can't remember who's the director who did Amelie, who did the fourth one, which yeah. isn't that great. Um, 
But at least each director put their own mark on the series. Yeah. So it felt like a different genre for each movie. Yeah. And then when Ridley Scott comes back for Prometheus, which I, I'll say I probably overhyped myself for that, but it was such a disappointing movie. And I've read like Apologia for it that tries to explain like, well, actually you shouldn't look at it as an alien. I'm like, well, if I shouldn't look at it as an alien movie, then why does an alien show up at the end of it? Yeah. Like it's just... Like you it, could once just, again, it was he was banking off the aesthetics of the the yes. alien movie for a film that wasn't anywhere near as good or well written with like totally different writers. Also, I think of the most recent Alien. I want to say it's like Alien Salvation. It's one of those movies where I saw it once and I have no desire to remember what it was called. But like the actors in it feel like they should be good. Like you have Michael Fassbender. Yeah, you've got Catherine Waterston. You know, like Danny McBride, who's a little... I mean, he's good. Yeah. But it just completely fails, and I think it's because whatever Ridley Scott's vision was for Alien after the first movie just is not interesting, or he doesn't no. know how to tell that story in an interesting way. He doesn't way. know how to do it in a way like... Again, there's that separation between characters, so it just makes it, like, boring after a while. All right, well, that's our five through three. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about our top two sci-fi movies. And we're back. We are talking about our top five sci-fi movies, and we've just done um, five through three. I'll go back over mine. My number five was Back to the Future. What was your number five? Okja. Uh, my number four was John Carpenter's The Thing. Mine was Alien. Uh, my number three was Alien. And my number three was Possessor. All right. So, Ariana, you're going to kick us off with your number two sci-fi movie. Her. Okay, Spike Jones. Yep. <laughs> was this in any of our relationship ones? I don't think it was. No. When I think back, I don't think we did. It's a perfect relationship. Movie. Yeah, it is. And it, it's one of the, again, not another film that tells you this is the year, da, 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 and this is how it's changed. It is. You figure that out. Yeah, and he, there is also the fact that like he, Spike Jones apparently sat down with people to figure out what the fashion would be during that time, so it doesn't feel, you know, it's not like the 1980s future, which is always shiny and glitter and metallic. Um, we're dealing with a sensitive, soulful man who, learned, who earns his living by writing personal letters for other people, left brokenhearted uh, after his marriage end, theater, becomes fascinated with a new operating system, and... I think it's just a very good film on how technology basically fills up a space for us from time to time. And I think we've all been there without notice unless you are listening to this and somehow still are off the grid. I don't know how. Um, but I think it's like probably this is probably like Elon's Musk biggest fear is artificial intelligence <laughs> like um, really giving us all this stuff but it's it's a film where two people people yeah, yeah grow over time the operating system um, 
by from what he knows by his uh, friend becomes either their best friend or you know their confidant or like someone that they can hang out with he just in turns falls in love and he is a person that you could tell that wants to fall in love but is scared like uh and then the whole well because he has a whole backstory that where he's divorced yes and that's like kind of affected him emotionally in a very it's affected him emotionally but he also realizes that at the end of the day that he was in part one of the reasons why this relationship didn't work like he but he also is still grateful to his ex having known each other and grown up together and i think it is a commentary of how we do become attached to our devices at the end of the day in order to not feel lonely or in order to not feel to not feel discomfort or pain we can go to our phones or go to our devices in order to stop and put the pressure even though we should be during this film she teaches him to be more present in his life and there are good and bad with uh technology and it's one that's actually like optimistic versus other films that would be like technology is out to kill you because i I like the idea that he you can tell he read up and paid attention to the idea of like uh self-learning ai yes uh and realized well that's just people right humans are just self-learning intelligence yeah and so even though the woman that he has a relationship with is represented by like a voice and images on a phone or a computer screen there she's always presented as like a person and it's the society around him doesn't think it's too strange like it's a little quirky but like yeah. people are known to have oh they people have friendships with their operating systems yeah, like, that's they, normal they also talked about the fact that like there are other people that are falling in love with their operating systems yeah. and like he basically goes on double dates with people with her there and there is this acceptance of it but it's also like um the fact that it's a breakup that helps him grow at the end when the relationship does end and it is an option between the both of them because like the final scene is between him and his ex-wife yes or actually i think it's amy adams character but there's like a big climactic scene where he meets up with his ex-wife played by Runa Mari. Yeah. And they, uh, or Mara Rooney, I call it. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah, Mara Rooney. Uh, Rooney Mara, that's it, because Kate Mara. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Rooney Mara, and it's, there have been people that have said that this is Spike Jones talking about coming to terms with the end of his relationship with Sofia Coppola. Yeah. And that in turn, Lost in Translation works as like a uh, paired film with this because it's each director talking about the relationship at a different point in their life mm-hmm. uh, and about the relationship falling apart and how they're working through it. Yeah. Uh, and so I know there's a very infamous interview where Spike Jones was talking to some reporter and was talking about the whole technology angle. And to Spike Jones, this is not a movie about technology, which is very interesting. Yeah. To him, it's a movie about relationships. But I think it's reflect. Once again, we kind of talk about how science fiction, when it's done best, isn't about the science fiction, but it uses the science fiction to tell a human story. Yes. That this is very much an example of that. Like, mm-hmm. if you didn't have this talking operating system with a soul, essentially, the movie just wouldn't work. Yeah. Like, if it was just another person. It would just be a really like. Well, you know, if it was just a you know a computer version of a voice telling you all this he would not or he met some woman who he talked to on like a tinder app or something Mm -hmm. like it just wouldn't work 
Right, well, my number two also stars Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Under the Skin, 2013, directed by Jonathan Glazer. It's his second appearance on our top list. He, if you remember last week, he directed Birth, one of my underrated movies. Yes. Uh, Scarlett Johansson plays a nameless alien mm-hmm. who has come to Earth, in particular Scotland, and is seducing men into becoming food for her species. And the movie never tells you this. This is It's based on a novel by, I believe, Michael Faber is the mm-hmm. author. And I want to say he's possibly Dutch. Uh, and it's a film that I have... Or it's a book that I haven't read. It's a book I really want to read because I've heard it's very different from the movie yeah. because you're more in her head. So you get a little more understanding. Jonathan Glazer, I think, does an excellent job of creating a movie that feels like an alien experience. Yeah. It feels like you are seeing things through the eyes of a consciousness that is not from this world, that does not understand the things it is seeing, uh, that is having difficulty with, like, emotions. Yeah. And because it's a Jonathan Glazer movie, the visuals are, like, mind-blowing. Uh... The, it's a very slow movie. Yes. It takes its time. It builds. Um, and has, like, truly horrific moments. There's the moment on the beach. Oh, yeah. About the dog. <laughs> that is just so... The dog. Then the ba- and, like, the and then the baby, baby at the end, yeah. But it's like... And, and how Scarlett Johansson's character... Like, that's one of those moments where you realize you are in the presence of something alien... Because she just so passively watches like a tragic event un- un- like occur and just you can tell like she doesn't know how to feel about it. She maybe doesn't feel anything about it. It's just yeah. sort of that was a thing that I saw happen. Um, her encounter with a um, disabled man at the end who has a facial disfiguration. It was, a, it was a real person. I can't remember his name sadly. But he's there was like a BBC documentary about him and it's a very profound facial disfiguration yeah uh i think that casting was brilliant because instead of you know tra- casting you know a a non-disabled actor and then using makeup which would be very like problematic he chose to cast you know a disabled actor to mm-hmm. play a disabled character knowing that that actor is probably going to bring a lot of realism to the emotions because yeah this is the first character that you feel her have an emotional connection with. Yes. And who she allows to escape from the whole little butchering plan that she has. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because she sees, like, aspects of human vulnerability, of how humans are cruel to other humans, and in what she's doing is an act of cruelty. And that makes her as bad as these people she's kind of... You can tell she kind of looks down on. She sees herself above. Uh... And I think the final images of the movie are amazing, where we finally see, like, her actual form is she pulls her skin off at the end, and you see this, like, it's an alien creature. Uh, It is, I think, almost a perfect science fiction movie uh, in the subgenre of, like, aliens. There's so many movies about aliens coming to Earth that vary in tone and quality. This is the only science fiction film I've seen where I felt like I understood how an alien saw things and what an alien culture might be like when the men are brought into that sort of, like, black void. And they're so, like, hypnotized and, by her. And then the process, when we see them, like, basically get their insides sucked out 
but it's all done in a way that you're like, I am seeing technology I can't comprehend, mm -hmm. but this is how my brain is processing what I see. This is the best my brain can do to, like, comprehend this. Yeah, I in the filming of it, I do know that for a fact that... That, you know, um... Apparently, like, the, the parts where she's in the van talking to people, a lot of that was improvised. And a <laughs> lot of that was actual people that were, they didn't you know, know they, were they on didn't film know they were on after. film, and yeah. they didn't even know that it was Scarlett Johansson that was speaking to them. Mm -hmm. So they had to get, like, a good, like, coach to make sure that her accent was very convincing. And there's also, like, the fact that when you start watching it, she, it's, she does kind of try to escape from what she's going through and it's almost as if she's trying to convince herself that she can pass as human but then she tries to have sex with someone and realizes that like her genitalia is all off well then eating food later in the movie and, it and makes she, her throw, she can't stand it like it makes her throw up even though like she's wants she wants to be human she wants to escape from this and so i'd also wonder like if there's underlying subtext about because we talked earlier about like body dysmorphia about people who don't feel comfortable in who they are yeah or people who have uh uh mental illnesses that cause them to not be able to like emotionally connect with other people even though they might feel like a desire to they just yeah. don't know how like it's very difficult for them yeah based on like you know the design of the world for cis normative people uh, but it's it, once it's a science fiction film that's just very mysterious, mm -hmm. and it's a movie where like you have to watch it more than once. Like there's just it's so dense. All right, now your number one science fiction movie, Ariane. Arrival. Ah, Denis Villeneuve. Two thousand sixteen. It came out. A linguist professor. Um, who leads an elite uh, team of investigators when gigantic spaceships touched ground in 12 different locations in the world. Um, different nations teeter on what to do, and America doesn't attack, which is new. <laughs> um, but I think this is a very good film. It was one of the films that actually surprised me because there's a lot of times I'll go into a film and kind of like pinpoint what's gonna happen. And that's sometimes that's not fun. And uh, you get different flashbacks, quote unquote. But I feel like if you haven't watched this film, I don't know. Like, we're spoiling all the films when we're talking about them. But, um. What well, you see moments from the protagonist's life. Yes. And it turns out that, like, the language that they use is basically a circle. The aliens? Yes. Oh, yeah. they, um,. She figures out the language in order to communicate with them. They want to give us a gift. Um, and that gift is basically being able to see within the future or just basically live your life in a loop. Yeah, uh, it's like their consciousness exists outside of linear time. Yes. They don't go from life to death. It's, and her yeah. fully comprehending it and then being able to do this and then living her life without regrets despite the fact that, like, her child dies and then later on it's supposed to be like her partner gets really upset and not understanding why would you proceed to have a child knowing the child would die anyways and it's because it's sort of like that love that you have for them what were you supposed to do if you knew that you were supposed to love them were you supposed to avoid them completely and um 
I think it's one of those films when you think about that, like, when you think about the love that you have for someone and how far you'll go for them, are you supposed to go back and decide, well, you never existed because that pain would be too much. Then you're basically saying that, like, you're going to be absent of ever knowing that love. And I think it's a great film. So That's another film I would say that did a very good job of giving you the alien uh, tone. That scene where they first enter the ship... Yes. It's so... Like, like the gravity's off. They don't know what to do. Yeah, just there's that sense of, like, I don't know what's about to happen. Yeah. Like, I am in a space I've never been in before, and this could, like, I don't know if there are these aliens going to be aggressive or peaceful. Like, yeah. you have no idea. And it's one of those, like, yeah, everybody always talked about Leonardo DiCaprio never fucking getting an Oscar. I don't understand why Amy Adams has not gotten one. I know the Oscars don't mean anything, but... Fucking hell does she go for it. Well, I think it like, was that. Was it that year? I think it was that and Nocturnal Animals. She was both. Yes. Up. <laughs> and it was like totally different characters she's oh, yeah. playing. Yeah. And what like Nocturnal Animals, like she's completely like unlikable at times, very selfish. And then this character just like is so believable the moment that you hear her talk. Like she's incredibly intelligent. And I was really happy when I finished like this whole list because I was just like it's a lot of women <laughs> on here uh, a lot of ladies and, white ladies but uh, ladies <laughs> uh, we're learning a language right now I haven't yes. shared with my readers and listeners what country we're moving to that will reveal that after the move has occurred <laughs> uh, but we're learning five dollars to Patreon and we'll yeah. give you hints yeah we'll give you exclusive <laughs> access to what country we're moving to uh, so right now we're like learning a language and so you're talking about arrival and I was like Oh, I kind of think of the scene where all of a sudden it clicked in her head. That's what, like, learning a language is like. Yeah. Uh, where you're, like, struggling and you're like, I don't, what, this goes here, what does that mean? And then whenever you see the language and all of a sudden your brain starts, like, deciphering it, <laughs> you're just like, I feel like Amy Adams in Arrival. <laughs> is that, is, are you just going to post that scene once you're partly I should you? do that, yeah. <laughs> uh... So, my number one movie is also a Denis Villeneuve movie, and that is Blade Runner 2049. Hey! Uh, So, Blade Runner 2049, uh, a movie that did not hit well when it first came out. And I think it was mainly with boomers and older millennials who really loved Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I remember I, Google Plus was around at the time. Oh, this is a and, while back. <laughs> and there was uh, someone who posted how much they hated it. And all the reasons they posted that they hated it, I was like, uh, well, yeah, you're not supposed to like that. That was a bad guy. Usually you don't like the bad guys. But then they were also mad because the villain doesn't get comeuppance. And I was sort of like, well, it's a massive corporation. They usually always win. Like, that's... yeah. It's hard for the little guy to go in and, like, turn that over completely. Uh, And so I feel like the Blade Runner 2049 sequel to uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner from 1982. Uh, Another, uh, I think 1981, I think is when Blade Runner came out. Um, And this film uh, follows a uh, police officer Mm -hmm. who is actually a replicant that hunts down other replicants. Yeah. Uh, He is... There's a ton of prejudice towards him within his police department in Los Angeles, this future megacity Los Angeles. Um, And he uncovers a mystery 
that connects back to the first movie and implies that there is a replicant human hybrid that was born and is being kept in secret somewhere. And he believes it's him. Yeah. Uh, and he goes uh, across this sort of future landscape. We get to see a lot more of the world in this movie than we did in the first Blade Runner. Uh, yeah. We get to see Las Vegas in the future. We see this sort of sprawling junkyard city that is populated by tons of like scavenger people. We see child labor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we learn a little bit more about like the police department. We get to see. Uh, other forms of technology, there is holographic technology in the form of joy. Yeah. That is a sort of companion AI that uh, our main character has fallen in love with. And there's some questions about does she love him back? Is she just programmed to do that? Yeah. Uh, it, um, for me, I think the reason why it ended up number one was the experience I had watching it was one of the most perfect film experiences <laughs> I've ever had. We did have a very interesting It was experience. a rainy after Sunday afternoon in October at our local movie theater, which is closed for renovation and, and COVID, it, it of course. And it was very, very run down. Oh, yes. There, like, there were holes, there were leaks in the ceiling. Uh, they weren't too bad, but you, it's a run, was a rundown movie theater, and it, there was like static while it was playing because it was not playing at like yes, it was not like digital, or <laughs> but it was like it you it made you feel like you were in a decaying society, yeah, probably because we do live in a decaying society, uh, and like that just the aesthetic experience, and then the movie itself is amazingly good. It's a movie about a character who believes they are the one. And comes to find out that they're not. They're just a person. And that they are not the the person that everyone's after. And the one that everyone needs to save. And I like... There's a beauty in that to me. Because that is a more realistic narrative than, you know... Matrix-type narratives where it's like... Oh, our protagonist is special above everyone else. Well, I do like Where it's the- like even someone who isn't special in any way... Can play a big role well, yeah, in the like larger they, picture. He, they, he, when he does have that realization and he is going to the other replicants that are like all trying to basically help this, you know, hybrid stay alive. Um, the way that they're like, we, we all have thought that we were, oh, we were that, and that's okay. But that doesn't mean you don't play a special role. Like what you're doing is important at the end of the day, and it is that heartbreak that he wants so deeply to and he does have feelings like Mm -hmm. um but he wants to have the full comprehension of those feelings he wants to know that understanding of it and it's one of those films that after the second watching and i don't know like how anybody else feels you kind of feel to me i almost felt like anger towards joy because it is false yeah and like the other replicant that it's sort of like you could just hang out with us has almost like more emotion towards him, but he's rejecting it because she's not familiar to him. He's, well, he's familiar. He's with almost him. like a self-hating replicant yeah. because of his position with the police. They probably there are a lot of replicants probably don't want to be around him. Yeah, and the humans in the police department don't want to be around him. So Joy is literally the only entity that he yeah. finds like comfort in. Uh, I think. Uh, I hate Jared Leto. I mean, I feel like I'm on record on the blog and with you <laughs> that I despise Jared Leto. He tells me every night before he, he kisses me on the cheek and goes, I hate Jared Leto. And I hope he does. <laughs> uh, but Jared Leto is perfectly cast here as this sort of 
bizarre cult-like corporate monster. He's playing himself. Yeah, I mean, that's what, yeah. Uh, and then there's it's a Dutch actress who played um, Love. Yeah. Who is the replicant that's kind of his right-hand woman. Uh, and she is really good in an almost a wordless performance. Yeah. The big final battle between her and Ryan Gosling's character is one of the best like fight scenes. Not that it's spectacularly choreographed, but it is just a brutal two people who have no other desire other than to kill the other person. And it is they're in a vehicle that's flooding with water. They're getting wounded. And so there's nothing, like, beautiful about the fight. But it just feels very, like, primal. Like, this is... Like, she wants to prove her worth to her boss by stopping Ryan Gosling. And he will do whatever it takes to reunite Harrison Ford with the hybrid, his child. Yeah. And just, like... He finally drowns love underwater. And it is so, like... It's just a scene that you feel when it happens. Yeah, because it's almost like he doesn't want to kill her, but it's like he's got no other choice but to kill her. And it's like you said, like they're they both probably if there is if it wasn't for the situation that they were in, they would not be killing each other. Because there's also like this weird thing that with Joy and him is she, it feels like she's also kind of self hating too, like how she kind of turns away when other like. Uh, replicants are born how she's just like doesn't seem to like she views herself above them and you think oh they would have an understanding but they don't because he's like no 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 no, I can't like there's someone out there that I have to save well then there's Joy the scene where she merges with the replicant sex worker was I remember seeing the theater and being absolutely stunned by the level like and I'm normally not someone that gets caught up in the special effects of a movie. Like, you know me, I'm not. Yeah. That's not my kind of movie. But this is a perfect use of, like, CG in a movie to create an emotional moment. Yeah. Because Joy overlaps her projection with the sex worker. And so you get, like, a third person mm-hmm. who's this combination of the two. Both people. And it's so well done. Um, I think the music by Hans Zimmer, who Hans Zimmer, I think, is a little overdone sometimes. Mm-hmm. He does such a good job of not just emulating uh, Vangelis's score from the first Blade Runner movie, which I think is my favorite thing about that first Blade Runner movie. But he, like, builds on it, so you hear familiar tones and... And it's a similar atmosphere that he creates, but with new pieces. I always love... There's a piece called Seawall that plays when he's flying his ship And the reason you know this is because you started playing this a lot. Oh, yeah. Like, you played it in the classroom for the kids. Well, I would play, like, ambient music in the mornings (laughs) as they were doing... I was like, it's really good. And it's it's very calming. But it's this, like, awe-inspiring piece of music where you're like... Because I can remember the scene is you're real you're seeing this massive wall that's been constructed because the sea levels have risen so much, yeah. And you're just realizing the scope of this dystopian industrial world. Uh, and like I said, it's it takes the world building of Blade Runner and it makes it even better. Yeah, that this is one time that well, actually, Suspiria kind of does the same thing, um, but it's not a sequel. <laughs> but it's it's one, one of those few times that like the sequel surpasses I, I the, the first film. And I've noticed there's a lot of zoomers 
who share this sentiment with us. So we're in touch with the youngs. <laughs> is they, uh, as I was on TikTok and other places, them talking about how much they love Blade Runner 2049, talking about the aesthetics, talking about how it builds on the first movie and they don't like Blade Runner that much. And so well, I like, think it's more if you were a teenager when Blade Runner came out, so you're some sort of like Gen Xy boomer, maybe you have more sentimentality. Yeah, but I just don't understand that need to cling to certain things. Yeah. Uh, but it does make me excited about Denis Villeneuve making Dune. I mean, he was in our both tops. He was our, yeah, he's both our number one. He's our tops. He's our tops. <laughs> Denis our tops. Um, and so I, it gives me a lot of faith in Dune. Uh, now, I hope that it, that doesn't end up being like, oh, this is the movie where everything went wrong for Denis Villeneuve. Topsy-turvy right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, those are our top five science fiction movies. Probably some controversial picks and statements. Not including Blade Runner. Some people probably would have put James Cameron's Aliens on there. Uh, no Terminator movies. Uh, so if you agree or disagree with our lists, you have your own list you want to share, you can do so by looking at the show notes. There's a link to our anchor page, and if you go there, there is a voicemail option. You can also leave comments on the blog post for this podcast. And if we really enjoy your comment, you have something interesting to share, then we will share it on the show. All right, well, we're back. And because this month, if you've noticed here, May 2021, uh, I've been doing the Science Fiction Masterworks series over on the Pop Cult blog. And so when we were thinking of what this segment could be about, I realized that we could probably talk a lot about Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, about, uh, it was been 2019 was when this happened. Like, I think it was summer, fall of 2019, we started watching um, what kind of quote-unquote the best of Star Trek The Next Generation, while you may have episodes that you think are better. We just kind of found, you know, a general consensus of 30 good episodes of the show, Either they were really good or they were very important to, like, the mythos of the show. And so we went through and watched those in chronological order. Of course, it was, like, two episodes from season one, and then we were done with that. Uh, and then we went on to watch the Star Trek uh, TNG movies, uh, except for Insurrection, which I think is just horrible. Uh, and then the first season of Picard which I don't think I'll be speaking out of turn when I say we were highly disappointed. Yeah, we that. also watched, like, Stargate. Was it? No, no, Star... Uh... We watched a little of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yes. But we didn't yes. finish that series. Because uh, I feel like that one, you can skip over episodes, but you are kind of missing stuff, so it's a harder one to do. Uh, so we're just going to talk about... I'm very interested just to talk to Ariana about what she thinks about Star Trek. Uh, I know my background with the show is... I mean, I was a kid. It was on in syndication. I was six years old when Star Trek Next Generation started. So, like, over the 90s, I would see episodes here and there. Uh, I saw some of, like, the important ones, like the whole uh, Locutus the Borg thing. Uh, I saw, like, the final episodes of Star Trek Next Generation. And then everything else was just kind of like, if I happened to come across it in syndication on Saturday afternoon on Fox 17, I would watch episodes of it. But I never, like followed it religiously yeah i did own at one point i'm not sure where this book is it's probably lost to time uh the star trek encyclopedia 
Because uh, <laughs> you know I... <laughs> okay, for in case I rolled my eyes, that's yeah. why he's laughing. <laughs> and it's, I just have a love of, like, encyclopedias of fictional stuff. Yes, that's true. Like, And know. so even though I was, like, a hardcore Star Trek fan, I was like, oh, this is cool. And so it'd be... It's because it's very rabbit hole-ish. Like, you look up an entry on Spock. And then you're like, oh, well, I want to read more about Vulcan. And they're like, oh, this, like, prehistoric Vulcan figure that was mentioned. I'm going to go to his entry and read it. And so I did the same thing with, like, Star Wars and, of course, yeah, comic Yeah, Star books. Wars has that kind of thing. Um, so first, my first question for you is just what do you think of Star Trek The Next Generation, this series? Oh, God. Of well, what we watched. Okay. I think we have to do a little bit of backtrack. Um, yeah. I was partially raised in, like, Puerto Rico. And so... I never saw Star Trek like what? dubbed in Spanish, mm-hmm. so it's it is not one of those shows that I ever saw syndicated when I was growing up. I'm sure it was like on. So. I not that I recall. That well, I mean, dubbed in Spanish. I'm gonna say that Star Trek was probably you could watch it in Puerto Rico. So no, but I think like you could probably watch it on cable and syndicated on the like the local okay. cable channels. Um. I know that one listener, which I will not mention their name, grew up with Star Trek uh, Trekkie parents that actually went to convention. Was this one of our patrons? Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't um, know <laughs> Well, but- hello to that patron who knows <laughs> who she is. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, like, didn't really have much idea of Star Trek. I was just very confused by the little bit that I grew up with because, like... Uh, you probably just saw like pieces of and never the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, and it was like the one that I was interested was this is gonna make me sound super like ignorant. The one that had like a female captain. Oh, Voyager. And apparently, some people of Voyager was like that was like, was like a void of emotion. Um, it had its ups and downs. Like, yeah. Voyager was a show I watched from day one. You watched the whole but, thing? No, but then it was like I, because it was. What was it? The UPN. The, yes, the United Paramount Network. Because yes. that was a big... Oh, UPN. That was what it meant? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. I, I did not know. I know the P was Paramount. Because it was Paramount Studios. Because they own the copyright on Star Trek. Oh, okay. I know and that. then CW was... Or no, it would have been the WB. was Warner Brothers, right? So, like, I remember what a huge deal it was when there were two new networks yes. coming. And my family never had cable. So... The fact that we were going to get two new, like, not syndicated, but network channels, even though it turned out, like, 90% of their programming outside of primetime was still the syndicated programming, yeah. was, like, a huge deal. So, yeah, I watched Voyager from, like, the first ep- I think I probably watched all of the first season or yeah. two. Uh, and then it was just kind of like, you know, I think I was in high school and I was just interested in other stuff. And well, and it's like, so it. going back... Um, I knew that there was like one series. I it wasn't until I got married to you that I like learned that like oh the next generation like the first like the first one that had a ton of movies turns out like it only had one season. What? Like the the one that has Kirk and oh, that was like three seasons. Three seasons. Yeah, it was and very like, short lived. It, it was, was short lived. It was canceled, and then a lot of people were upset about that. And then like the next generation. I just knew, like, oh, uh, that captain is a Professor Xavier, <laughs> like, yeah. in the X-Men. That's what I knew. And yeah. then, I, apparently, I thought that he hated me on the show, but it turns out he, like, oh, he, he did, he, like, he hated it at the beginning, because he was just like, I'm a theater person, yeah. and... 
He had an awkward time adjusting to doing yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I knew that people, everybody hated Wesley. Yeah. Even people who aren't Trekkies know everybody <laughs> hates Wesley. Um, but going into it, I could understand the deep love that people got for these characters. And it's this funny thing that, like, growing up, I realized that I quickly adjusted into the binge-watching slash streaming stuff because I was never good at, like, keeping time of what a t- the show, like, the time of a show that had to be on. Cause, yeah. yeah when you're a kid, it's just, like, you watch whatever is on yeah, in yeah, front yeah. of you, and, so, and you're not like, oh, I need to tune in at this day at this time so I can watch the next episode. So I completely understood, like, the love of Picard. Like, I understood it yeah. by the, the, what, the best episodes that we watched. Like, you... Yeah kind of good uh like i understood it. it was like having a stern dad that didn't know like that cared for you but wanted you to do the best well he was a flawed character that's yeah. something that i picked up watching it as an adult when you're a kid all these characters are just yeah. so general to you well, i was like oh he's like a, he's a very flawed captain so like if you wanted this sort of mary sue like kirk yeah. You weren't going to get that with Picard. And was, I think, yeah. yeah, and then Riker was supposed to be, like, the Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, for re-watching and seeing Riker, you're just like, what? Uh, I um, we, a bimba. <laughs> I like, and the weird thing about it is, like, we, since we watched the best of, we didn't see There's him. not a lot of Riker in no, the best and of. There yeah. is, like, he, I think, like, uh. Best of Both Worlds, the Locutus episode, he kind of gets a spotlight in the but, first episode. Yeah, and the funny thing is, like, he directed a lot of them. Oh, yeah, I think he's, like, probably a great director more than he is, like... it just turns out that yeah, he just Riker. doesn't want to be on screen. Well, I know with Picard, that was one of the things, is he had already been signed up to direct some episodes before they decided to include Riker in the show. And he said it was kind of weird getting in front of the camera again. He just... To me, he'll always be the Beyond Belief host. Yeah. That's who <laughs> Jonathan Frakes is to me. <laughs> But it is, it is one of those shows that I understand the complete love. The one thing I think, uh, by the ten listeners that we have, um, I don't like Data that much. I was gonna ask you because I was gonna say Data was of course a fan favorite character, and as a kid I was like really into Data. But having rewatched it with you, I think I fell out of love <laughs> with Data, and I'm like. What an annoying asshole! Like the oh thing God. is, like it's not as if there's you have just to ki- so much focus on him. Well, it's not as if like there's this curiosity with child. My problem is with data is a lot of times you think that you're going to get like a highlight episode, maybe about Jordy, and you're thinking, oh man, Jordy's gonna solve this, and then out of the blue, data's data the one. It's yeah. a data one that like, he secretly solves it, and everyone's like, thank you, data, and no one thanks Jordy about making this plant or whoever else because data just sweeps in and it's like well you know i'm not affected by this because um like there is okay so there's an episode that wesley and this girl that he likes figure out like that everybody's addicted to this game mm-hmm. um and this is not spoilers because this show's been on for like I mean, yeah you shouldn't even be listening to this <laughs> if you're trying to avoid star trek the next generation spoilers so like they figure out that everyone's addicted to this game and that's what's causing a, a ton of problems but at the end data solves the fucking issue yeah. so like data is this goddamn fucking mary sue <laughs> that can't do anything wrong and everyone's like and i get it like i completely understand he like is an artificial intelligence that is gaining like consciousness and people want him to have the same rights as human beings i am not against that he's an interesting story point yes or but oh my god and like lore oh yeah 
it's cringy. Because uh, you know it's like Brent Spiner was like, well, I want to have an opportunity to flex my acting chops. So writers, figure out a way to help me. Because I don't know if anyone listening has ever watched an interview with Brent Spiner or seen anything outside of Star Trek. <laughs> but I don't know if he's being tongue-in-cheek or he's doing like a character, like a false persona of who he is. But he comes off as like the most pompous ass. <laughs> And, like, so unlikable. Uh, very much like a theater person. Yes. You're sort of like, yes. oh, like, and he, because I remember it was back maybe like a decade ago, there was a video on YouTube where he was putting out, like, a, an album where he was singing show tunes or something. And I'm like, that's fine. And I think, like, you know, Gates McFadden did a duet with him on it. Um, and so, like, there's a lot of theater people in Star Trek. But just the way he presented himself in that video, I will never forget. I was just like, I hate this person. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's lore never worked for me. Yeah. Like, it just felt like, I don't know. It's just Brent Spiner, I don't think, is that good of an actor. Yeah, and so having him, like, on screen, like, even when they did, like, here is the man who made you like data and it's it's him again it's him again it's like he's playing like three different characters in one oh, no, episode or like, oh yeah where he yeah he plays nudie and sung his own creator yes he plays lore and then he plays data and they share multiple scenes together yes and i don't think he's a good enough an actor to carry that or like they don't have the production value to edit and cut in a way that makes that come off it, really like, good. here's the thing let it let us ignore whatever thing that they need to do when it comes to the effects. I can, like, buy Suspend into it. disbelief, right? Like, I could go into it with the idea, like, this is a unique, okay, whatever, you did what you had to do. But, oh my god, he is not a good actor at the end of the day. Um, yeah, there's, but there are other... So who was your favorite character from the show? I think I already know the answer to this, but... I didn't. didn't you tell me the answer? Because I forgot all their names. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Uh, I feel like you remember this character. Uh, name the character, like, not name, but describe the character that's your favorite. It's the guy that has all the foreheads. The Klingon. <laughs> I wanted to say, I I wanted to say Bork. And I'm like, Bork, <laughs> yes. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I just like, my wife's favorite Star Trek The Next Generation character was, you know, that guy with the stuff on his head, Bork. Bork. We all remember Bork. <laughs> you mean Worf? Worf. Bork. So, Bork, tell me why Bork is your favorite. Okay, I think, okay, the reason that uh, Bork is my favorite character. <laughs> you say Worf, we gotta Okay. Worf. No, I, I genuinely wanted to say Bork. Uh, Worf is my favorite character, which is interesting because later on, pe the problem that they have. There's a lot of people that hate the Worf episodes with all the Klingon stuff. Okay, I understand why. And I will explain uh, really badly for all of the, the Trekkies. I liked him because being a person who has been raised in one culture and then trying to learn, uh, going into another culture and then trying to learn to love my own culture, um, it can be very hard to go through that and so it was very interesting to see someone who was like proud but at the same time not displaying trying not to display like the worst of their traditions right and trying to like basically fix whatever past histories but but then realizing that they can't so they're just gonna like let their name be like whatever like 
Borf. <laughs> like, Borf. Uh, but, like, doing all that stuff. But the problem that I have with it at the end of the day is they never let him have almost resolve those issues about his culture or his race. It is always, like... It's an ongoing thing. It's an, like, it's an ongoing thing, and it's not even, like, good. It's No, not like, a, we did not watch all of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. No. And I know I did not watch all of it, so I'm not sure if somewhere in there... He finally has a moment where he comes to terms with being raised by humans on Earth and also being Klingon. So I don't know. Just within what we watched, yeah, it, it was just an that was just like a character trait and of Worf rather yeah. than an arc that was being resolved in any. It was like always uh, it was, like it just felt like he kept getting reset. Yeah, Klingons would come in and he'd argue or he'd show up to the Klingons and it was like it. Like, even though he's still one of my favorite characters because he just cares, but he cares in a way that it's hard for him to express. <laughs> I'm only laughing because I'm like, it's me! You're a it's Klingon. Me! <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Klingon! <laughs> Have you ever heard the way Puerto Rican speaks? <laughs> it's all like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, the Puerto Ricans who are listening, I'm really sorry about that. Oh. Um, but it's more like, like how I feel is about like there's an expectation of who I'm supposed to be and then I turn around and I'm like no that's this is how I am but it makes me feel sad that they didn't really give him much afterwards apparently they gave him a son oh yeah because well, yeah in the best of episodes Alexander does not appear once I think I it was think. like va like once, vaguely yeah. there and it was like and they were sending Alexander away <laughs> yeah, that was the best of episodes when Alexander got <laughs> Jettisoned off the ship. They're like he, they're sending him off to his grandparents. So I'm just like, dude, you're doing the exact same thing you didn't want them to. Do. Even though you love your parents, but you're sending him off to be raised by humans when you wanted a good like Klingon father to teach yeah. him. So, uh, yeah, there's um, who's like the empath? Uh, Deanna Troy. I like. I remember as a kid, I was very interested in her, but I feel like maybe that was my blossoming bisexuality coming at me because she was like the one in the first few, like the first three or four seasons. She's always wearing this outfit that has is not a Starfleet uniform. No, and then later on, like someone else takes charge for a little bit. Like uh, and it, they used it to write in that she would wear a uniform for. Yeah, me. and like at first she's like really uncomfortable, but I don't know if maybe it was that she was kind of tired of wearing that uniform. Um, I think the actress didn't... She knew that she was being presented as, like, a sex object for the show and just kind of went along with it. And then I think behind the scenes was... And then different people came on to the show or writers decided it was time to, like, let's end that. That's not really a great progressive <laughs> yeah. thing to do. And then, like, and watching it, like, her character, in, like, interested me, like, at the beginning. And then afterwards, I was just like... I'm bored because it's just she's well they have her get in a relationship with Worf which is the interesting angle right yeah that, that's the direction the character should have gone and then with the movies they just go eh forget all of that we're gonna have her marry Riker which that was not an interesting relationship that was like the no. relationship you expected yeah and it was just boring and then there's never I don't believe anywhere that the whole relationship with her and Worf was ever resolved it was just it wasn't happening anymore. Wasn't she, like, basically, like, uh, telepathically, like, sexually abused by one of the characters, like, in the that was movie? In a, oh, that was in uh, Nemesis. Yeah, it was, like, 
and it was like uncomfy because they don't want to address it but they're kind of addressing it they're like oh oh maybe maybe this happened to her and then she doesn't show up for the rest of the movie because she's kind of like this was a horrible time so a lot of the episodes we watched I think we almost every episode with the Borg are part of the best of everything from when Q throws them far into space so they encounter them earlier than they're supposed to to uh, Hugh from iBorg Oh, yeah, he was, like, a great... That was a great um, episode to watch. Which you had to do with all the Borg prejudice. That Guy, what do you think of Guinan, Whoopi Goldberg's character? I actually like her character, but there's kind of times that... Um, she, since she's not really, like, a part of the crew, she's, like, this all-knowing character. It's almost as if, like, someone put in... God as a black woman. Well, there's just... what is that trope like the magical Negro or yes, something? Yes, and yes, she yes, is yes. very much like she's an exposition device. Yes. Yeah, it's sometimes she isn't really a character other than she's like a way to propel the plot forward or like to spout wisdom. I think my and I think this is like one of the movies where she's like well, set in the past. Well, I was gonna say the uh, the the Iborg episode I felt like was one of my favorite episodes with her because it's one of the few where she gets like humanity. Because she is unwilling to budge in her hatred of the Borg. And, I mean, they wiped out her people. So, like, yeah, it makes sense. But, like, the show doesn't let her off the hook for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the end of the episode, I feel like it, it, more Jordy has come to see Hugh as a person. Guinan's a little more reticent. But I like that. That, like, okay, in the span of, you know, 45 minutes, the characters aren't going to have a complete 180 and suddenly love this Borg. They might crack a little bit, but they're still going to be holding on to those things because those are traumas that have been with them yeah. for like a long time. And there is a lot of like, um, co coded and also like very up to your face, like about genocide, about or the Bajorans and the Kardashians, the Kardashians, not the Kardashians, the Kardashians. Now you have me confused. <laughs> Kardashians. Kardashians. The Kardashians are an evil race of aliens that live in Los Angeles. We're switching it up. We're talking yeah. about reality TV. No, there's if you do a reboot, you make it, they're the Kardashians, and then it's just a race of people descended from Kim and Kanye. Um, but, they're, like, it is a very interesting show, uh, like, show where I would understand people who became obsessed with it. And there's also, the, the funny thing is, since the pandemic, there has been, like, a resurgence with people re-watching it again, because there's a few shows that are out there that you can watch multiple episodes of. And because it's, like, a procedural, you can kind of zone out when you want yeah, and yeah. come back to it. It's not one of these shows where every episode is a chapter in the story. It reminds me of a comedian that we have listened to that he said that he was watching uh, Star Trek but not really listening. I think it was Moshe Kasher. Yes, Moshe yeah, Kasher yeah. talked about it and like that, you know, uh, Picard delivers like this really potent like uh, monologue and he starts crying. While he was like making food in <laughs> yeah. his kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Just bawling his eyes out. And like, I think that the interesting thing is watching the cast who had a genuine love for each other so it was never like when the show ended it didn't end on their terms like it was this weird thing that I feel like, like the movies killed it for well them. I feel like yeah. they wanted to continue with the movies but I think they would have had had it been like nowadays if they had been on like an HBO Max kind of thing it would have probably been an interesting 
more development, but uh, we can move on from that to Picard. Okay, so we'll talk about the Picard show, which is essentially a continuation of Next Generation. I know Michael Dorn, who played your favorite, Borf, um, <laughs> um, has expressed interest in it. He, like, I think he pitched a Worf show and they shot it down. Which I think, I'm but I'm like, I would actually be very interested to follow what Worf is doing now. Now, however, uh, Alex Kurtzman, I think, is the name of the producer who we have not watched. And I don't think we're ever really going to watch like Star Trek Discovery. Everything I know about it, have seen about it, read about it, just does not feel like the reason why I would want to watch a Star Trek show. Like, isn't she supposed to be like half sister of like Spock? Well, she's like a adopted sister of Spock or something like. Yeah, I, we haven't watched it, so I don't know all the details. Uh, all <laughs> Let I know, us know how we're wrong. All I know is that from what I've read and seen about the tone of the show, it's very much about shooty space battles and long arcs. And I feel like one of the reasons why I enjoyed Next Generation was that you have these kind of one-and-done episodes, at most a two-parter. And it I, I don't know, like... It doesn't feel, from what I know, I always want to preface it because I have not watched Star Trek Discovery, that it's much about exploration. I, wasn't there, like, someone who said that uh, it was a lot of, like, we love science moments? Yeah, it's a lot of, but, like, Alex Kurtzman is the driving force behind it and also was the producer behind Picard. And after having watched Picard, that's made me even less likely to watch Discovery because... I'll just say what I think about Picard, and then you can share your thoughts. I thought Picard was a shallow show when you held it up next to Star Trek The Next Generation. It was more about... It was a weird mix of, like, nostalgia bait, and then quickly trying to get us to love new characters that hadn't been given space to breathe so we could get to know them and love them. Yeah. Uh, And... Then weird, just completely out of place, extreme graphic violence. I keep thinking of the scene where it's uh, Seven of Nines, like, protege. I didn't watch that far into Voyager, so I do not know this character's name. But he was, like, a reclaimed Borg. Mm-hmm. And the whole scene where they're, like, tearing out his parts and we're, like, watching him die. That felt so tonally out of place for a Star Trek show. Yeah. And then all of the stuff on the reclaimed Borg cube went nowhere in my opinion like that was it was such a disappointing story it was kind of like uh the way that i view it is like they're like oh we're doing a bunch of studies here and you know this is like a weird museum kind of i never really understood what was happening on the key and um also i felt like it was not a good mix of having uh, the guy that played Data come back on and they didn't like get someone who maybe looked younger and then maybe had him like voice the person because he's appearing in like Picard's dreams. Well I feel like that was, they could make him look older because it was like oh Picard would imagine him as old. But like no actually when people have died I feel like we remember them as they were when they died. Yeah. I don't imagine time passing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean like I can forgive that that's like such a technical thing. I just don't feel like the show was emotionally satisfying. It wasn't. There's parts that you're just like, you know that like the guy that plays Picard is like in his 80s, and they're obviously had someone else do some of when the he running. Seems old. Like it just there's moments where you're like, he's kind of out of breath, and it's not necessarily like 
maybe it's within the the, the story that's happening, but it's kind of like, huh, why does this old man just retire and you leave him alone? And, like, get <laughs> yeah, but other it's supposed people. to be like he feels guilty for everything that's happened, and it's also like this weird thing that like one of the characters that comes back used to work for him, but then lost her career, so now she's an addict. But the frustrating thing is, all that happened off screen? Yes. So I'm like, I don't understand your relationship, and and I don't care. And it also doesn't feel like something that he would allow one of his, like, co-workers to go through. I also want to bring up to you the lack of Jordy in this story. Yes! Oh my god! It was just... I didn't understand. Like, it's... Okay, so... No, Jordy, why... Now, why are you so mad that Jordy wasn't included? I in think because Jordy was, like, my se- second favorite character, and I... And why would he have been important to this story? Th- they killed him off, essentially. Well, I, the, the, we don't know if he's dead or not. But, uh, but I'll say, in the comics... So, take that with a grain of salt... They say that Jordy is on the uh, on Mars where they're building all the ships. Yeah, and then that's in the comics, and then in the show that uh, like dry dock place where they're building the ships gets destroyed when all the androids turn right. So you couldn't infer that Jordy was killed, but no one ever says if Jordy is dead or not. But I think your thing was. This is a show whose entire story is based around saving Data's daughter. Quote, unquote. Because yeah. it's like, yeah. And in a show where it was made explicit that the best friends in the show were Data and Jordy, why the hell is Jordy not a part of this story? Yeah, like, it's as if, like, so Picard goes, looks for a fucking painting or I don't know who does. And well, because Data has the, the dream where Data's painting the painting yeah. with some clue in it. And it's know. supposed to be like, what is the name of this? It is called Daughter. And it's also like this weird thing, like, Data technically already did have a daughter. Lol. Yeah. And like, so there's never a mention, like, she doesn't even look like her. She doesn't even, like, talk like And what happens to her? Does she, like... I think they just, like, turned her off and disassembled her. I don't remember. Like, I don't know. Or Yeah, I don't... Yeah, that's something that... I mean, it was... Once again, because it was a procedural show, it never really got brought up again. Yeah, and so, like, you're saying that, like... So, did he have a <coughs> second child and then, like, fuck off to, like, the first one Well, I think made? the idea is, like, she's his, like, spiritual child in that... And once again, I'm not... I don't have an extensive knowledge... But it was the gentleman that challenged Data's existence as a human... Who then founds the sort of institutes around, like, cybernetics and android science. Yeah. I, like, it's, he took part of Data's positronic brain matrix and then created another AI yeah. using that as a foundation. So it's, like, it's his metaphorical child. But the show sells it as if, like, Data conceived this child. Yeah, like, he made her up. And so, um... So there's supposed to be, like, three versions of her. Remember, like, she grows up with a sister. Well, it was... Yeah, because then there's... And the sister died. Oh, dies. God, yes. Because <laughs> then the captain, the, the, like, the roguish captain character Which was, just so happens... It just shows me how I just only, like, love the, like, uh, the BIPOC people. Like, and, like, I was like, another person that I enjoy because he's, like... And the password was like a Spanish lullaby. I can't say I enjoyed any of the characters on the show. But it was like, oh, I want to know more about that character, but all we just get are like character tropes. Well, like he only exists to play into plot convenience. Yes. Because like, oh, when he was on this starship years ago, he happened to meet 
a woman who looked exactly like Data's daughter, except she had, like, golden skin or something. And uh, she and liked so- eating french fries with mint ice cream. Like, that was one of the things. She's like, how did you know? I've met you before, kind of yeah. thing. And then the planet of the androids at the end. Yeah, and guess who's there? Data. Greg Spiner, <laughs> once again, in a play. But he's not Data. You know, he's playing, like, Noonien Sung's son, who we've never heard of before, I don't think. Which I love is like you created these androids and you made them, you call them your sons, but you don't mention your biological yeah. son. Uh, yeah, it was. And then the final part of the show where Jean Luc Picard dies, but then they rebuild him, they give him like an android body. Yet, what is the big question we had about his android body? When we finally saw him, like, awake and conscious. That he's the same age? Why would he be... Why would he look 80-something years old? But there why are... would you not give him, like, a... I mean, I know he's an android, so now he's going to have the strength or whatever. But, like, why limit him to well, this form? Well, I think form? they were also saying, like, they made him another body that would <coughs> last a few more years. Because he's not... He's supposed to be, like, 100-and-something years old. Yeah, and he's they're like, oh, old, you'll yeah. live, like, to 200. And it's like, ha, ha, ha. But it's just like, yeah, that's the other plot. Like, he's dying. He is, like, dying, like... And it's resolved in just, like, the cheapest way. Yeah. And I think they also kind of ignore that future thing where he was, uh... Remember that set that apparently, like, he... There's, like, oh, I'm Captain Picard. But it's the Doctor. And it's, like, supposed to be in the future. They get married. So they have... Well, that was, uh... You're thinking of the series finale, All Good Things. Yes. Which... I don't know if that future is canon. I'm assuming, I guess it's not. Um, but, like, yeah, Beverly Crusher was the captain of, like, a medical ship. Yeah. And, like, he had, it was implied that she were, was married to him. And at she one kept his last yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And it's like, uh, okay. And it was like, also, since we didn't watch a lot of the episodes, that, like, the, the romantic. Between Crusher and Picard. We're, like, so light unless someone wants to give me, like, the best of those two for me to understand why. Even having watched more episodes than you, I still have always been, like, he was the captain when, like, her husband died, so I don't understand, like, why... Like, there is always a few, like, hints of a moment, but you could always feel like he hates Wesley so much he's never gonna hook up with her. You'd be like, a very cruel stepfather to like, Wesley, like, ah! which I would enjoy watching that show. But it's also, like, this weird thing that, like, he seemed to dislike Wesley, but he, whenever he encountered children, he seemed to like them a lot. But It was awkward, like the whole Captain Picard day on yeah, the Yeah, but ship. remember the other awkward thing is they kept saying about how awkward it was for him to be around children, and he loved his nephew, but then there's, like, this whole thing in Picard where, like, this miniature, like, nun boy... Who like is there and what? Hold up! <laughs> they live with these nuns, but you like they're all supposed to be like female warriors. Oh, okay, and okay, like, okay, stop, stop, stop. And like, see, I'm thinking of him in France at the vineyard, and I'm thinking when you say nun boy, I'm thinking of like a child in a nun's habit, and I'm like, what the hell are you? T- like, you mean it was a the Romulan planet? Yes. I forgot about Shinobi Romulan. Yes. The, the samurai guy that just. It, once again, it's another relationship that took place after the series 
that we are supposed to immediately go, oh, I love them together. I'm like, I don't know who this person well, is. it's supposed to be, like, you were, like, saying he's so awkward around the kids, yet for some reason they keep, like, hinting that this oh, boy Oh, he was so him, fatherly to him. To, yeah, Why? like, had a father and when son relationship. When did he ever show fatherly? But he was like, I can't bring him with me, so he needs to stay with you, uh, with you. And they're like, when he comes back, they're like, we couldn't find him a place, so he knows all of our knowledge, but since he is not a woman, he cannot participate in our <laughs> just like that character felt so out of place because it's like why is there like a samurai sword wielding Romulan like I get aesthetically it's like ooh doesn't that like pop against all of this but other like, Star Trek stuff like the but then just from like a narrative point of view once again he's just more of a plot thing because he's with Hugh when Hugh dies yeah. and that's just like we have these characters in places so that plot things can happen but at the end, I'm like, I don't care about any of them. I don't... Well, like, the other thing that they did that I knew that it was, like, driving you crazy was the sexy, uh, the sexy, Ro was it Romulan? Like, he was a sexy Romulan, like, and the... In the series, they don't really look that appealing for humanoids. But in this one, it's it's just he's got arched eyebrows, and it was like driving or less. Like Romulans normally, like in TNG, had this sort of pronounced like Neanderthal brow almost, and it was just sort of like, okay, why do Romulans look different now all of a sudden? They're it's like just this very. Well, we need there to be like sexy energy. Between <laughs> and he does have sex with like that one the girl, android girl, yeah, right? like several times, and it's like. And once again, like, I didn't understand, like, and then it was implied there was incest between him and his sister. I don't know. Or there was, like, it, just, there was a it was weird a vibe. very weird right. vibe that they just got a little too close. It's like... But then also, can... <laughs> in Picard, like, one of your central characters is seven of nine. So you are willing to bring back old characters. So why did you bring back a character who literally has no connection to Picard? But she knows who he is. Well, I mean, of course. But it's like, yeah, by the end of Voyager, they got back home and everything, so she would be around. But I just don't know why. I mean, well, I guess they share the Borg thing. Well, like, that interesting thing is, once like, again, Jordy makes more sense to be in this story than Seven of Nine does. Well, From the data, because it's all about data. Like, yeah, the Borg is in there, but the story is ultimately the end about data. Literally, like, they have a big final scene where data dies again. And Jordy should have been there. Well, like, Jordy should have been there and not really Picard. Let's just be honest. It should, it should have been should just Jordy. It should have been Jordy's show, but everybody loves Picard. Picard should be, like, a sitcom about running a vineyard. Like, I mean, that's essentially what he was doing with his life, and then it was interrupted. I, I was more interested to find about those Romulans that lived with him on the vineyard. I was just very wife. upset that the dog was not part of the show. Oh, yeah, the pit bull. I was like, oh, yes, the pit bull! And I'm like... And I think it would have been more interesting for him to stay on Earth and kind of explore, like, I don't know, make it about Starfleet politics. Because it feels like at some point they keep hinting that, like, Starfleet has become so big and corrupt. Like, that he did something that he's no well, longer... All the stuff with Romulus. How, like, he basically wanted to protect Romulus. And they saw it as a yeah. convenient opportunity to weird, get rid of it. And that weird, like, you know, gotcha moment with the TV presenter. Like, that's what kind of started the whole thing on how yeah. he was like, that was the wrong thing. We so should have done that. are you excited about Picard Season 2? No. <laughs> Do you have any plans to watch Picard Season 2? Not two? if Bork is not on there. <laughs> if Borf isn't there, that's what you're going to have a shirt. You go... If Borf ain't there... Don't want it. Don't expect to see me. Uh, drink so, my plum juice. You have heard our very impromptu, <laughs> off-the-cuff conversation about Star Trek. and This is, is going to be legendary. People are just going to be listening to me like, ooh, they know so much. Yeah. From people who aren't Star Trek experts. 
So, if you would like to share your comments about Star Trek, uh, about anything we said here about Star Trek, <laughs> if we made you mad, I'd love to share your comments. I don't think it's going to change our minds. Uh, if you agree with anything we said, if you want to uh, go a little further with anything we said. If you want to put any corrections. Yeah, we don't care, though. <laughs> uh, so, uh, just leave those uh at the link in the show notes you can do a voicemail or you can leave comments on the blog and we'd love to know what you think about star trek That was our episode. That was quite an interesting conversation with Ariana about Star Trek. Uh, and I was a bit surprised by some of the movies on her list. I think she was surprised by some of the ones on mine. If you have your own top five science fiction movie list you'd like to share, or any thoughts you have about our conversation on Star Trek, you can check out the show notes, and there is a link to our anchor page where you can leave a voicemail, or if you go over to the blog, you can look for our post on this episode of the podcast and leave a comment. We would love to hear what you think, and uh, we might share some of the best of those comments and voicemails on an upcoming episode of the podcast. Until next time, we'll see you later.